042 X-Files Retrospective Podcast. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week we discuss Season 1, Episode 15, Lazarus. Original air date, February 4th, 1994. IMDb score of 7.0 out of 10. This is a little bit of a different take on a lot of X-Files. A lot of the challenge in this episode was trying to do pretty much a straight-up police search and rescue kind of story, but doing it in the context of the X-Files, and trying to figure out a way to make that work. One of the things the production staff did was assign David Nutter as director of this particular episode. It's his third episode of the X-Files, but he's established himself, at least in their eyes, as someone who can get the job done. And what he can see in terms of establishing things is coming through very clearly. The script was written by Gordon and Gansa, who are, again, a team that we've seen a lot of. And this is an episode that's loaded with Before There Were Stars kind of guest stars. Uh, some of them were already established. So one of the established guest stars is Christopher Alport. He's the one that initially starts off playing Jack Willis. He hasn't had some incredibly prominent roles, but looking him up on the IMDb, there's a pretty healthy run of a lot of TV guest spots and smaller movies from 1973 to 2008. And he actually does a fairly nice turn here. There's also Sec Verrill. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce her first name. It's spelled C-E-C. But again, she's had... You know, a few respectable roles. One of the people where if you were watching a lot of TV in the 80s, you'd probably recognize her because she was getting enough guest spots, but nothing that really stands out tremendously on its own. The other two prominent stars, Catelyn Keith Rennie is one of them. He plays a very small part in this, and this was right around the start of his career. His first IMDb credit was in 1993. There's a lot of guest spots here and there. He had a recurring role in My Life as a Dog. He was in Existence, which is a Canadian sci-fi show that's part of Bureau 42's greatest science fiction film tournament. He was also in Due South as the second detective Stanley Raymond Kowalski. He was in Memento, which is probably one of his better known roles, and a great movie in its own right. He was in Battlestar Galactica as Leah Bowen Conoy. He was in Butterfly Effect. He played the father to Ashton Kutcher's character. Kingdom Hospital, guest spot on Supernatural, guest spot on Smallville, recurring role on 24, recurring role on Rookie Blue. He's in a couple episodes of CSI Miami. Lately he's been in Californication, The Killing, the Firm TV series. So again, he actually does pretty good work, and he will be better known to X-Files fans later in the run. This is actually the first of three characters he's going to play in the course of the series. The other actor that may be recognized would primarily be recognized by the Canadian viewers. This is Jackson Davies. In this series, he played Agent Bruskin, another FBI agent working on it. He's had guest spots in MacGyver, 21 Jump Street, Bird on a Wire, a decent career going back to the late 70s. Canadians would know him primarily from The Beachcombers. Beachcombers was a CBC series that ran 19 seasons. Now, for the non-Canadians in our audience, the CBC was the nationally funded network. And because the federal government was helping to fund the CBC, and still does to help make sure Canada has a film and entertainment industry, which is debatable about whether or not that's actually needed these days, there was definitely a time when it absolutely was needed. And anyway, because of that, they tended to fund shows that would have been cancelled due to cost and ratings in the American market. The Beachcombers is one that I do not think could have survived that long. It's basically the tortoise and the hare. There's a couple of log drivers. One guy has a fast boat that can pull one log at a time. He's the bad guy. One of them has a slow boat that can pull hundreds of logs at a time. So it's the tortoise and the hare, and it ran for 19 years, 209 episodes. Jackson Davies played Constable John 
Constable for 105 of those episodes. Yes, that was his name, Constable John Constable. Gives you a pretty good feel for the quality of the series that it was on. Not necessarily the quality of the actors. There's some pretty good talent on the CBC shows that are out there, but you basically cannot touch the U.S. paychecks when you're working in the Canadian film industry. So a lot of the people who are less concerned about patriotism and supporting Canada and more concerned about getting the big-end budgets and getting the high-end projects ended up in the States, especially then. That is definitely changing now as there are more people who are working hard specifically to support Canada, but that wasn't necessarily the case when the Beachcombers premiered in the 70s. At any rate, this story, it's, as I mentioned, a little bit different than a lot of the X-Files episodes in tone. This really is a search and rescue mission. The teaser starts off with Scully on screen, which, as we know, seeing Mulder and Scully during the teaser is still pretty rare at this stage. We have yet to see Mulder in a teaser, but this is Scully's second appearance in the pre-credits teaser. She and an old colleague are sticking out at a bank. They've been tipped off that a series of bank robbers that her friend, Agent Willis, has been hunting down for a while, and they're there to act on a tip and try and catch them in the act. Uh, they catch one of them, they don't catch the one who makes the getaway. We learn later that they have a pretty standard MO where one of them does the robbery, the other one drives getaway, and vice versa. Which really makes me wonder why they had agents prepared inside the bank to catch one of them, but nobody outside the bank to stop the getaway vehicle. At any rate, things go sour. Dupre shoots Willis, Scully shoots Dupre down. They both end up in the crash room in the emergency room at the hospital, trying to resuscitate them. They've already declared Dupre dead, and they're trying to get Willis the FBI agent back to life, trying to resuscitate him. Scully keeps demanding that they keep pushing and keep trying and not give up, even though he's flatlined for 12 minutes. After 13 minutes, he does come back. Now, the audience have seen that when they administer the paddles of the defibrillator to Willis, then Dupre's chest seizes, and he responds like he's also receiving the paddles. We also see the tattoo on his arm with Mark Snow's distinctive creepy music theme a couple of times, which is some pretty heavy-handed foreshadowing, I think. The tattoo is shown clearly. I don't think we needed the music on top of that. At this point, we have no reason to think there's anything unusual about the tattoo he has on his arm. As the episode develops, we soon realize Mulder's right, there's been a body swap. So they managed to resuscitate Willis's body, but it's actually inhabited by Dupre's mind, and that's what's causing the problems. Willis ends up escaping from hospital, and he's going on his own hunt for Lula, using his role in the FBI to do it. Now, Mulder is able to track this down, figure it out, and he keeps providing supporting evidence, like Dupre's left-handed, Willis is right-handed, but since coming back, Willis Willis writes with his left hand. He's forgotten Scully's birthday, even though it's the same as his own, and a number of other signs that pretty telltale as far as Mulder's concerned, but perhaps not so telltale as far as the others are concerned. They're chalking up Willis's aberrant behavior to just typical post-traumatic stress disorder. The man was on the crash cart for a while. There are some parts of this episode that are done very well, especially the lighting. We've got some pretty creepy regions. We've got some interesting locales. One of the things that really struck me is that as we're going through, Willis seems to be having an internal struggle, whether it's Willis or Dupree, that's going to be the dominant personality, and there's a bit of back and forth and that internal tug-of-war going on with him. In most of the time, Dupree is running the show, and when he is, Jack's face has pretty uniform lighting. But when we have the internal struggle, we get some very high-contrast lighting. So he looks like he's of two minds, and we get the visual metaphor for that, where one half of his face is very brightly lit, and the other half is left in shadows. So there are a few nice touches there. At 7.0, if we've been 
tracking the IMDb scores, we see that's not a particularly strong rating for the episode, either for the season or for the series. And it's not too far out of line, but it's not one of the best ones. And I think part of it is because it is more a straight-up police search and rescue, right down to the cliché, finding the place where they're hiding out, because when they call in with ransom demands after kidnapping Scully, they hear a small aircraft taking off in the background. And I can't tell you how many detective shows from the 80s used that same device. I lost count. The element of the episode that worked for me the least was the tattoo that we've already mentioned. So early on we see that Dupree has a tattoo on his right arm. The only purpose that seems to serve is to tell the audience that Mulder's right. I mean, even only one character notices that the tattoo transfers from Dupree to Willis at some point when the spirit transfers as well. We haven't heard anything about the origins of this tattoo. We don't know why it's tied so closely to him. All we know is when Dupree transfers to Willis, Willis grows the tattoo, and at the end, when that ends resolved and Willis is killed with Dupree inside, the tattoo fades and disappears. So it's a tough shot to do. Even earlier we see when they're trying to dissolve from an arm with the tattooed without, the special effects technology on their budget isn't quite there. And I find, for me, it holds back part of the episode. Earlier in the series of podcasts, we mentioned that at this stage, Gillian Anderson was pregnant with her first child, and that the father was Clyde Klotz, who was an assistant art director on the series. This episode was actually the final episode that Klotz worked on. From here, he went on to a number of other projects. I'm not entirely clear on why he left the series, whether it had anything to do with his relationship with Gillian Anderson or not. I suspect not. One of these series that he went to after this was Reboot, and this is something we'll be coming back to later, since Reboot eventually did one of the earlier parody episodes of The X-Files, and it actually guest starred Gillian Anderson herself. But that is something we will get to in podcast episode 64. So it's not a completely poor episode. I respect them for trying to do something new. They will eventually get the police procedural format down in at least two very good episodes in later seasons. They didn't quite have the knack for that down here. Ultimately, what we have is a decent episode. It gives us a little more background into Scully's character through her discussing her friendship with Jack Willis and the relationship that they had in the past. But for the most part, it's not really one of the standout episodes either of the season or of the series. We are building to a few of those that are going to be coming up in the not-too-distant future. Anyway, join us next time for Young at Heart. Intro and outro music is by Lastwell, created under the Creative Commons license. All other content, copyright 2014, Bureau 42. Please feel free to send any comments and feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com or leave us a review on iTunes.